0: All right. If you want to make your way back to a seat, and if you have a Bible with you, we're, we're going to pick up in Romans 8 where we left off last Sunday. Wow, I yelled over first and second service for more or less my entire introduction, so this is a very nice moment. Uh, if you've got a Bible, Romans 8, we're going to pick up in verse 5 and work through verse 17 today, but it's going to require at least a couple minutes of, of recapping one to four in case you weren't with us last week, or just, just so we get a running start at at what the second part here of Romans chapter 8 has to say. So as you get situated, you get a Bible opened up and opened up to Romans chapter 8, I'm going to pray and then we'll dive in together. God, thanks for this morning, Lord, for the chance to come into worship, God, and, and, uh, that's my prayer, Lord, that you would hold our hearts in a position of worship, whether we're singing or studying your word, whether we're praying or interacting with one another as a body of Christ here. Lord, I pray that our our disposition, our attitudes would be one of, of worshiping and glorifying you in all things, Lord, and that that attitude and disposition would continue when we leave here. God, I pray that your Your spirit inside of us, Lord, would hold our lives in a position of of humble longing to glorify you and to make you known for what you've done uh, in the world through the gospel, God. Lord, I pray that uh, you would illuminate truth from your word today. God, that you would speak to us about exactly who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer, why that matters for us. God, I pray that we would see maybe with fresh eyes or with fresh clarity, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit here today. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in a large sense, this is where we are in the letter of Romans. From Romans 6.1 down to Romans 8.39, we've grouped together into one section under one heading that's uh, got this general theme that all who have been justified by Christ have new life in Christ. Romans 6 said that it would be impossible or illogical to think that anything else is even possible. Romans 7 says that you don't have this new life by your ability to obey the law or your ability to have enough willpower to uphold the commands of Scripture. That's not how this new life happens. Romans 8 says you have this new life thanks to the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you. In Romans 8, 1, 2, 3, and 4, Paul said... Look, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only is there no condemnation, but it's actually we've removed the condemnation and added freedom or liberation from the law of, the, of uh, death and sin. And instead, we have this new life that comes from the law of the Spirit of life. That's the Holy Spirit inside of us. And then Romans 8, 3 and 4, Paul goes on to say, and the way that we're sanctified, the way that we bear the image of God well in the world, is by walking. According to the Spirit. And so it would make sense that we need to have some general idea of exactly what role the Holy Spirit plays in the life of a believer. If we're going to walk according to the Spirit, we need to have some clarity on what exactly it is that the Holy Spirit does inside of a follower of Christ. That's where Paul's going to turn in Romans 8, verses 5 down to 17. And before we jump into that, it's important that we at least have some common footing on who the Holy Spirit is. Who is this third person of the Trinity? And so I'm going to offer just three things this morning. They're important, very basic understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. And the first one is this. The Holy Spirit is God. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all in one essence, all in perfect unity for all of eternity, each person of that Trinity is fully God, not a third of God. So the Holy Spirit is not 0.333 repeating percent of who God is. The Holy Spirit is God fully, completely. In the same way that the Father is God and the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. He is Lord in the exact same way. And yet, in the Trinity, there are three distinct persons. There's a distinct Father, a distinct Son, a distinct Holy Spirit. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about the Trinity. In fact, it would take More time to work out the complexity of the Trinity than even one Sunday morning could handle. But the basic root of that is that God, the, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, each person is fully God. That includes the Holy Spirit, which leads to the next truth, the next basic foundation of who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force or not some kind of energy or not some sort of Power. There was recent research that was done that showed that 56% of all Christians think the Holy Spirit is an energy that exists kind of out in the world. That's not true. The Holy Spirit is a person. Michael Horton says that the Holy Spirit is not a power emanating, but a person sent. And so maybe that seems unimportant. Or maybe you hear me say that and you think, okay, this seems like semantics. You're just using one word. You could use a different word and it's all the same thing. I want to contend uh, rather passionately that that's actually not the case, that there are some dangers that can creep in when we allow ourselves to think that the Holy Spirit is just some kind of force that exists in the world. One of those dangers is that if, if we treat the Holy Spirit not as a person, but as a force, we've actually diminished him beneath the Father and the Son. That would be to go directly against the fact that he is God entirely. He is Lord. The Holy Spirit is God, and to make Him a force would be to kind of make Him subservient or less than the Father and the Son. That's one danger of thinking of the Holy Spirit as a force. Another danger in thinking that way is that when we reduce the Holy Spirit to a force, we start to try to use the Holy Spirit for our experiences rather than allowing Him to use us for His purposes. We we make the Holy Spirit, when we think of it as a power, as some sort of service to us rather than understanding that the Holy Spirit is a person that wants us to be submissive to him. When we think of the Spirit as a force, we flip the relationship into the wrong order. And we start to think that it's our job to create the circumstances or to create the environment whereby this force will show up and do the thing that we want it to do, but that's not true. The Holy Spirit is a person, specifically a person that indwells believers. He is present right now in every person who's received the grace of God by faith through Jesus Christ. Not some kind of force that we need to create the right setting so that he will show up. He's a person. The third truth is that the Holy Spirit has a distinct role. So the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all one in essence, all in complete unity for all of eternity past and all of eternity future. And yet each person has a distinct role. Everything that God does... God does. Think through it. Everything that God does, God does. The whole Trinity does. There aren't three separate things, three distinct buckets that the work of God falls into. And this is like the Father's bucket, and he does that. And this is the Son's bucket, and he does that. And this is the Spirit's bucket, and he does that. All of the work of God involves all three persons of the Holy Spirit. And there are different, are all three persons of the Trinity. And there are different ways that scholars and teachers Use verbiage to talk about what that is. And so the way I'm going to talk about it both today and then in future is by saying that everything the Lord does, all the work of God, is initiated by the Father, secured by the Son, applied to believers by the Holy Spirit. And so all of the work of God happens. Through all three persons of the Trinity, God initiates it, God the Father, God the Son has secured it for us by the gospel on the cross, and God the Holy Spirit applies it to a believer's life. What we're going to see this morning as we walk through Romans 8, 5 through 17 is the Holy Spirit doing that kind of applying work in the life of believers. It's not an exhaustive list of everything that the Holy Spirit is applying in a believer's life, but it's a good representative list here that Paul lays out in the early part of Romans chapter 8. Let me give one more bonus truth about the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. Every single person who's received the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, throughout our life as believers, there can be deeper or richer experiences of the Holy Spirit, or there can be these fresh anointings for specific seasons or specific tasks, specific um, works that the Lord wants a believer to do. But it is not possible for us to know Christ and to not have the Holy Spirit. To know Christ, receive the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ, is to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. They cannot happen one without the other. So this morning, what we're going to see as we walk through these verses are four really important doctrines of Christian life, of Christian truth. And I could spend an entire sermon on each of the four doctrines, but we're going to tackle them all at once today, which means we're going to be brief. I'm going to provide an overview. I'm going to give about as much detail on each of these doctrines as Paul gives in Romans chapter 8. And then we're going to zoom out. And with our understanding of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit, we're going to think about why is it that Paul would run through this list the way that he does in this particular spot. And I think there's a very specific reason for that. Here's the ending point today. The Holy Spirit applies to a believer all that is theirs by the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. Inside each and every person who's placed their faith in Christ and received God's grace, the Holy Spirit is applying the blessings of the gospel. Let's start to walk through that. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9 in Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to start. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile toward God. Because it does not submit to God's law, indeed it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong To him, How I'm going to do this is that I'm going to give you the big, the kind of fancy theological word that goes with each one of these doctrines, and then we'll put that into more common terms and flesh out exactly what it means. This first doctrine that Paul alludes to here in the working of the Holy Spirit is what's called the doctrine of regeneration, that you have new life. You've received the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ. You were born again. Old, gone, new has come, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. And so one thing that the Spirit provides, applies into the life of a believer is that because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have a new focus in life. It's not just that you've been regenerated, made new. It's that that regeneration means that you have a new focus. Something new dominates your life, preoccupies your existence. Something new is what colors everything that you see in the world around you. And Paul talks about this by putting two things in contrast to each other, the flesh and the spirit. In Romans 8, 5 through 9, Paul holds these two things out next to each other repeatedly. The flesh is the word sarx, that's the Greek word here, S-A-R-X. And when the New Testament talks about our flesh, it's not talking about our skin, or our muscles, or even like our appetites, and, and those kinds of things that exist within us as human beings. Instead, when the New Testament, when Paul uses the word flesh, he's talking about all of who we are as human beings. Our entire humanness that is broken and stained by the presence of sin. In contrast to that, Paul says, is the spirit, pneuma. And when he talks about spirit, he's not talking about some divided part of ourselves that we would call the spiritual side of us that's like religious and some higher part of our being. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And he holds these two things in opposition to one another. And he describes what life in the flesh looks like. These are the phrases that he uses, that it is hostile toward God that it does not submit to God. It cannot please God. It does not belong to God. Literally, uh, your translation might say that the flesh is enmity toward God. That phrase literally means that your flesh is in the opposite camp from God. Picture kind of a war, a battle scenario, whereby there are two camps, one camp being The Lord, the other camp being your flesh, and it's hostile toward God. It wants to make war against the things of God that exist. He says that's where you are if you live in the flesh. Enmity toward God, hostile toward Him. You can't submit. Why would you? Your flesh wants no part of that. In contrast, there is the Spirit. And the Spirit, Paul says, is life and peace. No hostile conflict, peace, Paul says. And the mind, he uses this phrase mindset three different times. Paul says that an individual who by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ has been indwelled with the Holy Spirit, that person's mindset is controlled by not the flesh but the Spirit. Rene Descartes was a famous French philosopher mathematician. He's the one who's famous for pinning the phrase, I think therefore I am. What Paul's lays out for us here is that in the life of a believer, that phrase needs to be flipped. I am, therefore I think. I am made new. I have been regenerated, and therefore my mindset is controlled by the Spirit. I am new, therefore my mindset is new. I'm not hostile anymore, I'm not in the opposite camp any longer. I'm controlled by, dominated by, obsessed with, absorbed by, characterized by the Spirit. We have that preoccupation. We've been made new. That's regeneration. We have a new focus. That's initiated by the Father, secured for us by the Son on the cross, and it's applied to every single believer thanks to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration. Then Paul goes on, and in verses 10 and 11, he, he very briefly describes another doctrine. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through the Spirit who lives in you. This is the doctrine of glorification. If you want the big words. Paul very briefly says, you you will be glorified. It's this, that because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you have a new foreshadowing of eternal life. Paul spent the early part of Romans laying out for us, if not justified by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the foreshadowing of our eternal life is wrath, condemnation. That's the just punishment for sin that God will... uh, unleash upon all those who have not been saved. Now, Paul says, but if you're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, there's a new foreshadowing of your eternal life. You will be glorified, not condemned. Glorification, not condemnation. He does so like this. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. The reality of sin in the world is that each and every one of us is going to physically die. There is no escaping that. If you go and you uh, go to a car lot, you buy a brand new car, not a used one, but a brand new one. When you drive that car off the lot, it immediately loses like 20% of its value or something. And then every mile you drive beyond that is just this downward race toward the day when you just park the car out, like a hundred bucks for the muffler or something like that, so that you can end up getting a new car. That's what's happening in your vehicle. The reality of a fallen and broken world is that when you were born and you took your very first breath, your breaths were numbered. And every breath you take after that, every day you live after that, is one day closer to the day when you will physically die. And if we're not justified by grace through faith in Christ, condemnation is what awaits us. If we are, Paul says, glorification is what awaits you. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and if you've placed your faith in Christ and received God's grace, he does, then this is the promise. He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through the spirit who lives in you. This same exact spirit that was at work in the tomb on the third day outside of Jerusalem there and raised Christ from the dead is going to glorify you at the end of all things. And there will be this raising and this changing of your body. And you'll go from this fallen and broken body into a glorified and perfect one. You'll go from a sinful uh, personality, if you will, to a glorified personality. And Jesus' resurrection is the pattern and the pledge of that. The Holy Spirit did it for Christ in the tomb, will do that for you as a believer. That's his work. And it means this. That even though our bodies are not glorified now, they are fallen, they will be one day. And the Spirit will do that. And when it happens, our bodies will be the perfected vehicle for our perfected personalities. No more sin in your glorified person. And that means no more frailty, no more pain, no more disease, no more death, no more decay in your glorified body. The Spirit will do that work. At the end of all things in your moment of glorification, initiated by the Father, secured for us by the Son, applied to the life of every believer by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul continues, verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We've been talking a lot about sanctification over the last couple of months. Paul drills down into it a little bit further here, and the, the theological doctrine here is sanctification, but more specifically, it's mortification. He says, you put to death the deeds of the body. Mortification is the killing within ourselves of those things that are contrary to God. Scripture tells us not to lust. Mortification would be trying to put to death lust within us. This is what that means in terms of new life in sort of layman's terms. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have a new fullness of life. Paul says in verse 12, We are not obligated to the flesh to live according to it. Literally, we owe our flesh no debts. That's what verse 12 says. Why? Why? Well, because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We've been clothed in something new, regenerated, right? We've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. And the flesh and the sin that are inherent within our flesh will one day be eradicated completely, will be glorified. In the meantime, we still have it, but we don't owe it anything. And so we kill it, we mortify it, we crucify it. Paul says in the middle of verse 13, you put to death the deeds of the body. It requires something of you. And it requires something of you in a continuous fashion. You continually put to death the deeds of your body, moment by moment, daily, week by week, season upon season upon season in your life. But there's an important caveat to that. If you back up just before that, if by the Spirit you put to death, Deeds of the body. We do this mortifying, we do this sanctifying by the Spirit. It's His energy and discipline and determination that enables it. There was a, a theologian many years ago and a pastor, his name was Charles Cranfield. He provides this incredible imagery to this idea. He says that it's by the Spirit that we are able to pull out our sin, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is and then kill it. That the Spirit allows us to do that sort of work. You can't do that on your own. It is by the Holy Spirit that we're able to do this sort of work and put to death the deeds of the body. You could just look to Jesus' own imagery from Matthew chapter five. We read the following words and we think to ourselves, man, that is drastic. Jesus says, if your left eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And we read that and we think to ourselves, holy smokes, that is graphic. And then he follows it up by saying, it'd be better to go into heaven minus a foot than to go into hell with both of them. And and we think to ourselves, that sounds so extreme. How in the world could we possibly do that kind of killing of the sin within us? Romans 8 says, you can do that by the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that allows you to do that. I want to give you a, a real life example of this. And so I'll use the person that I know best. That's me. And I'll use a, an experience that I've been having uh, probably over the last year and a half or so or two years. This is the last season of my life. I've come to a, a painful realization. And it's that I don't rest well. I, it's like I just can't do it at, at, over this past season of my life. I can sloth super well, though. Here's the deal on not resting. You might hear that and think to yourself, that doesn't even really sound like a big sin issue, Tim. Are you serious? Uh, Not being willing to rest is a display of a real lack of trust in the Lord. That you think to yourself, if I were to rest, everything would fall apart. If I were to really take my hands off the wheel for a day every week, Stuff would just really fall apart. I don't trust that the Lord can sustain whatever it is in my life if I were to rest. That, that is a sinful lack of trust in the Lord. I, I have a real problem with doing that. And so I will try to rest at times. Uh, Friday's typically the day that I use as a Sabbath. is at work for part of the day, so I would you know, theoretically be able to be at home and really recharge myself. That would be what resting would look like. you know, Get away from the emails, get away from the text messages, spend time allowing my soul to be in the presence of the Lord and just to rest. Here's what happens instead. I'm an amazing slother. I know that I'm supposed to rest, but I don't really know what that's supposed to look like. And so on a Friday, let's say... I can get deep, 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 deep down a YouTube rabbit hole where like I started by watching America's Got Talent audition videos. And three hours later, I was watching a squirrel water ski and I have no idea how I have no idea, A, where the time went or B, what the chain of events was that even led me to this video or. Uh, I can get really, really deep down uh, in the comments of an article posted online somewhere. And if you want to waste time, let me tell you where to go. You just go to the, you don't even have to add your own comments. You just read everyone else's comments and marvel at humanity, basically. (laughs) Or I can also get really lost in like mindless little games on my cell phone. There's There's an app for your phone that's called Threes you slide these cards together and you're trying to like double them and make bigger and bigger numbers. And I can play hundreds of games of threes in a row. I mean, all of a sudden it's like two in the afternoon and Melody's come home from work. I haven't eaten lunch and I've barely gotten out of bed and all I've done is played threes. That's not resting. That's that's being slothful. That's saying, I know that I should rest, but my mind and my heart actually can't really Take the idea of not being engaged in what's going on in my life, so I will mindlessly distract myself. And I'll just sloth my life away here. What's happened over the last year and a half or the last couple of years is that that process repeatedly has left me in a very real state of almost total spiritual exhaustion. That's the danger of not resting. And so it's not just that, like, I need a vacation and a chance to nap and sleep in a little bit. It's that my very soul is fatigued. That's not what God wants for me. And so as the Holy Spirit has been illuminating this to me, this to me over the last, I don't know, month or so, I've done the right thing, which is get myself into the presence of the Lord and say, God, I know that Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God, I'm asking you to give me rest. And all the while, the Holy Spirit is saying, that's a good, that's a good thing. Uh, you need to mortify some stuff. You, you need to gouge out the eye, so to speak. So one day, I had to have a, a real, like, come to Jesus with my iPhone. And I needed to go through, and I needed to get rid of the things that caused me to sloth. I needed to eliminate all of the distractions and excuses that I can use for not resting. And so I went through there and I did that all. That was a couple of weeks ago. And then this Friday rolled around. And there I am at home. And I'm thinking, okay, I you know, like this is going pretty well. I, I need to rest. And I don't know what happened, but I found myself in the app store on my phone and I'm just looking at all the games, <laughs> fantasizing about how wonderful it would be to play them for hours right? And about 30 minutes into this process, I thought, Tim, what are you doing? Like, this is not any better. The Holy Spirit was like screaming out inside of me, put this thing to death. End it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, applying to you the reality of sanctification, the means of mortification. Now, there will be moments for me where that rises up within me again, and and I struggle with that again, and I will be tempted to think, of my own shame and condemnation before the Lord, right? Look at where Paul ends this passage. Keep in mind that this is where we are. You've been made new. You've been regenerated. You will be made perfectly new one day. You will be glorified. And in the intervening time, you owe your flesh nothing because the power of sin and death has been defeated. Thank you, Jesus. And the power of sin and death will not exist for all of eternity, it'll be gone. They won't even be things anymore. And so, in the intervening time, you owe your flesh nothing. You're being renewed. You're being made new. And Paul says this is where it all ends verses 14 to 17. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. That is the doctrine of adoption. Initiated by the Father, secured by the Son, applied to every believer by the Holy Spirit. It means this, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have a new family life. Paul says in in verse 14, all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. Let me just pause here for a moment and speak to the ladies in the room. You might really want that to say sons and daughters. In fact, you might have a translation that's tried to kind of soften that by saying sons and daughters, and there's nothing wrong with thinking of yourself as a daughter of Christ, but there is an immense beauty in understanding that you've been adopted as a son. You see, when Paul writes that and he uses that language, a son at that time was the heir to everything that was the father's. He, he was able to bear the father's name. He had uh, access to the father's property and he was assured an inheritance. And God says, it does not matter what your gender is. You've been adopted as a son. You have access to everything that is the father's. And so, Ladies, you might want to think of yourselves as daughters. I encourage you to embrace the fact that he's adopted you as a son. You have access and inheritance to everything that is the father's. There's an incredible beauty in that that we shouldn't diminish. And there's this, I want to be adopted as a son, right? Because there was a time when I was in the enemy's camp. I was hostile toward God. And it's not just that, by grace through faith in Christ and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's not just that God has said, you know what, I'll go ahead and bring the enemy close to me, but I'll make him like some sort of uh, lower prisoner or something. It's that God has said, I will bring the enemy all the way into the family. I'll take the one who was hostile toward me and make him or make her a son of mine. Paul says, you are now heirs Of God and co-heirs with Christ because of your adoption. And it's the spirit that applies that to us. It's actually the spirit that cries that out from inside of us, testifies to it along with ours and says, Abba, Father. That word in verse 15, Abba, is an Aramaic word that was like a household term, a very familiar term. It would be the equivalent of a child today saying Papa or Daddy, No faithful Jewish individual would have referred to God as Abba. It was way too informal, way too familiar. You wouldn't step into the presence of the Lord in prayer and address him in that sort of way. One person did all the time Jesus. In the vast majority of Jesus' prayers, he addresses God as Abba, as Father. There's one very notable time where he doesn't do it, it's while he's on the cross the sin of the world has been placed upon his shoulders and he doesn't cry out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross there, Jesus is experiencing separation from God in a way that he has never experienced before. Sin has broken his eternal communion there and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Romans 8 tells us, Thanks to his death and his resurrection, thanks to his ascension there, thanks to the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us cries out with as much intimacy and familiarity with the Father as Jesus did. The Holy Spirit within us says, that's how close you are with the Father now, adopted into his family. Abba is your word the same intimacy that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have experienced for all of eternity, the Holy Spirit applies to us in our relationship with God. We have been adopted. Again, initiated by the Father, secured by the Son, applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And the benefits of adoption, the implications of that are staggering. We're entitled to bear His name. We have His protection and consolation. We have the privilege of being chastised or disciplined by Him, even when that's painful or difficult. We're also told that we're right there alongside Christ as co-heirs of all the benefits of relationship with the Father. And then here's the big one. All of this happens in total security. It cannot will not ever be taken away from you. And so we step back and you look at all of this together, beginning at the start of Romans 8 and working down through this litany of doctrines that Paul walks his way through and attributes to the Holy Spirit's application in your life. And we see the Holy Spirit applies to a believer. All that's theirs by the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means this, the order is so intentional. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Instead, you've got freedom or liberation thanks to the law of the spirit of life that's at work inside of you. You've been made new. When you uh, you received the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ, you were forgiven, you were justified or saved, you were indwelled with the Holy Spirit And you were regenerated. Because of that regeneration, something new controls us, which means we're not focused on or dominated by or preoccupied with the flesh that's hostile toward God, but instead with the Spirit who glorifies God. And the fact that we've been made new is this very dim sort of shadow of what's going to happen at our glorification. That at one point, we will be made perfectly new, fully transformed, entirely perfected, completely glorified, And the Spirit who did that resurrecting work in Christ is going to do it in us as well. And so because of that, because we've been made new, because we're going to be made completely new, in the intervening time, we will be made new because we owe sin nothing. It's been rendered powerless by Christ. It will be rendered extinct in eternity. And so from here to there, it has no hold on us. We can mortify those things. We're not gonna experience them in eternity anyway. So for this little vapor of a life that we have, we can release those thanks to the Holy Spirit's energizing work inside of us. And then the big one is that you do that in complete security. You've been adopted. God is your father, which means that as this whole process plays itself out, and I'll go back to my example of myself, And I have my moment where slothfulness, a lack of willing to rest, rises up within me. And I might stumble to that temptation every now and again, but there's no condemnation. I've been adopted. There's the total security of living in relationship with the Father. Why in the world would we not want to submit to that? It's the same question I asked at the end of last week. Why would we not wave the white flag from the enemy camp and say, I surrender completely. No more hostility. Holy Spirit, person of the Holy Spirit, you can have complete reign inside of me. You've made me new. You're gonna glorify me one day. You're sanctifying me now, and you've brought me into Abba, Father kind of relationship with God. You can have total reign in my life. Think about the opposite side of this. Think about the flesh that Paul sets in contrast. It's not regenerating you, it's degenerating right? It's not making us new. It's leading us toward death. It's never going to lead to our glorification. Instead, it will end in our condemnation. It doesn't mortify anything within humanity. Instead, it kills. And it cannot lead humanity into a father-son sort of relationship with God, but instead it creates alienation toward God or from God. And so the question is, why would we not surrender? Why would we not come before the Lord come before the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us and say, you can have everything. You are so loving and so good. I give all of me over to you. The grace of God has made the truths of the gospel, the realities of the gospel available to us. The Father's initiated it, the Son has secured it, and the Spirit is applying them to us. Why would we want to walk according to anything else? And so we're gonna spend our last few minutes here in worship really similarly to how we did last week. My encouragement is for you to respond. That might look like singing. It might look like standing up and declaring the truths of the words that we're gonna sing together. A lot of them are about the beauty of being God's child, God's son. It might look like doing some more wrestling inside of your own heart. The beauty of the Holy Spirit being a person is that he is the illuminator, not some force that might illuminate. He is the teacher, not some force that might teach us. He is the encourager, not some force that might encourage us. And so I want to offer you an encouragement over our time together here. Spend some time working with the Holy Spirit inside of you. You might be here this morning, same as I said last week, and not know the Holy Spirit. And that's because you've not ever received the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where this begins. You can't be indwelt by the Holy Spirit until you've placed your faith in Christ. You might be here this morning and be saying to yourself, I get intellectually the Holy Spirit is inside of me, but I just don't feel like I'm experiencing this kind of work that we're talking about in Romans. That's a submission thing. And you might need to spend some time here as we respond, but also going forward as you leave here later today, really allowing the Holy Spirit to speak and then you putting yourself in a place of submission and saying, I hear you, Holy Spirit. I will submit to you, Holy Spirit. And so the band's going to start. You're free You can stand up and sing with us by all means, please do. But at the same time, if you need to do some responding in a different sort of way to the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you right now, I encourage you to do that as well. We'll spend, I don't know, 20 minutes or so uh, allowing room for us to worship in response to the work of the Holy Spirit inside each and every believer. You can join us in that.